This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. We are talking to Stephen Guy Bray today about sexuality. Stephen, welcome to High Theory. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. So before we move on, can I ask you to introduce yourself? I'm a professor of English literature specializing in Renaissance poetry and queer theory and poetics. And I'm at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. What is sexuality? Well, Okay, first of all, you get the credit for coming up with the word sexuality. Wait, I, I no, I found it in your work. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, okay, <laughs> well, okay. So I began many years ago working in what was then called gay and lesbian studies. And the focus on that was biographical, either the biography of the actual writer or the biographies of fictional characters, you know, looking for homoeroticism and so on. And I moved from that into thinking, as queer theory started, into thinking more about the role of sexuality, because I was really more interested in poetry and how poetry works, how poetry proceeds. And at first I thought this was a different direction, that I had been looking at sexuality and I was looking at textuality. And then I realized that they're actually the same thing for me. I mean, not invariably, but often. And so two of the books I wrote are concerned with this. My second book was called Loving in Verse, and it's a theory of poetic influences, erotic. So in it, I look at a number of poets and how they deal with the work of a predecessor. The prevailing theory about uh, literary influence is, of course, Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence. It seems to me a really American and heterosexual model. Right. And I'm not saying it doesn't apply to any poetic relationships, but many of the ones I know about are actually characterized by incredible love. You know, the poet is so grateful for the work of his predecessor and so on. So I was talking about that and I was talking about the poems then as a way for the two poets to meet. The most obvious example, and I begin the book with this, is of course Dante moving through hell and then purgatory with first Virgil and then Statius, two great Latin poets. Then my next book was Against Reproduction, because for years I'd been bothered by the reproductive metaphor. You know, when people say, 
writing a book is like having a child or my book is my child. I just hate that. Mm. I think there are all sorts of ways to describe textual production and that's actually one of the dullest. So I looked at Renaissance writers and how they spoke of their own production and it was actually bizarre. And a lot of them in fact use the reproductive metaphor but in really grotesque ways. That also was another consideration then of the way that sexuality is figured in textuality. Right. And then the most recent book, which just came out last year, Shakespeare and Queer Representation, is actually not really concerned with sexuality at all. It's concerned with an idea of queerness as something that can inhere in language and certain uses of language. So sexuality then is a way to think about the poem and the sex together and to see writing and reading poetry as in some ways analogous to having sex. You know, insofar as sexuality entails in the erotics of reading, I'm wondering if and where the idea of the illicit or the idea of something that is subversive you know, comes into play there, or reading in itself as a subversive activity. For me, the greatest critic of all, I would say, though I know that's a bold claim, but certainly the greatest critic for writing about what it's like to read something is Roland Barthes. And if you look at Barthes' writing as a whole and you compare how he writes about writing to how he writes about sex, for instance, in his diaries, uh, passages, I think they were published as, you see how similar it is for him. So that was very influential. A lot of it came from Spinoza, I right. love Spinoza. Everyone needs to read more Spinoza. I agree, yeah. I say that so often. A student of mine a couple of years ago made me a mug that says, I heart Spinoza. So it was very heartwarming. And Spinoza, you know, he's the idea of the canatus, which is that everything, insofar as it is possible, strives to persist in its own being. And that's often seen as one of his central concepts. And I thought about that, and I thought this is a way to think about poetry and to give poems their agency. The poem also is something that strives to persist in its own being. And if it has its agency, then it can also be, it seems to me, a sexual subject, or at least a sexual conduit. I was also really influenced by the development of this idea in Deleuze and Guattari's book, What is Philosophy? which is not one of their more famous books, but it's really influenced by Spinoza. And I have a quotation here. He's talking about bodies and actualizations of bodies. And he says, even when they are non-living or rather inorganic, things have a lived experience because they are perceptions and affections. Mm. I like that formulation of it, that things, in my case, non-living things that are poems have a kind of agency and they have their own affections, their own lived experience. So I'm interested in talking about the ways in which literature can be a way to express sexuality without necessarily writing a sex scene. Not that I have anything against that, but that you can find sexuality and specifically for my purposes, queerness Mm -hmm. in literature in contexts that seem completely Mm non-sexual. That was a long answer, sorry. No, no, not at all. I mean, you've given me my lead because I think we're already in that territory. How do we use sexuality? How do, let's say, writers use sexuality? How do readers and critics use sexuality? That's a good question. I was thinking also the last few days, thinking about sexuality. Sexuality could also be the study of sexting, that contemporary (laughs) phenomenon. But maybe you'll write that. I'm not going to write that. Um, It's more your generation, I think. 
I think sexuality is a useful concept for people to discuss parts in poems or in the text as a whole in which there seems to be something really personal, really intimate. For instance, one of my examples in the Loving in Verse book was the way Hart Crane writes about Walt Whitman in the Cape Hatteras section of the bridge. And he stages a really sort of intimate experience. The two poets walking on the beach and holding hands. Whitman died long before Crane was born. So it's obviously a purely textual relationship, but it's also a sexual relationship. So I think the term is useful for people wanting to talk about that sort of thing in literature. And then they don't have to feel, okay, in this part, I'll talk about textual matters, metaphor, narrative, or whatever. And in this part, I'll talk about the erotics of the text. The erotics of the text, of many texts, they're sort of built into the text itself, as opposed to being elements in the story or separable scenes or something. When you talk about sexuality, when you talk about the erotics of writing, what are your concerns with form? Yeah, form is very important to me. The book I'm writing now is, in fact, not at all queer, really, but it's maybe the whole idea of it is queer. I don't know. The whole book is on line endings in Renaissance poetry, various ways of ending lines, and I've you know, organized it into three main chapters. So form is tremendously important to me. And my considerations of poems' forms, which is you know, always part of what I do, that is not always a form of sexuality for me, but it is sometimes. And in the book I mentioned earlier, Shakespeare and Queer Representation, there are various points at which I say that the form is actually itself queer. I mean, I make this point most obviously perhaps in the chapter on Macbeth where I talk about the witch's speech and how different it is from what we think of as the norm, you know, the blank verse of a Renaissance play. I mean, this is a point also made by D.A. Miller in his famous essay on Alfred Hitchcock's film Rope, where he talks about fussiness over form. And that kind of fussiness over form is itself queer to some extent. And I would say it's queer on the part of the poet or filmmaker or whatever it is, but also on the part of the critic, paying that kind of careful attention to form. And it's also an important part of teaching because the thing you have to do in teaching, as you probably have already realized, is slow down the students. You have to get them to pay attention to the words. Yeah. So how will sexuality save the world? And you're free to answer this question in any way you want. It's such a great question. You said that to me and I thought it's, it's so cool. I don't have a real answer. I think it's a useful thing, maybe not for the world, but certainly for people who teach literature. A lot of literature is sexy. It's about sex often explicitly. There's sometimes student resistances to that, accusations of reading the sexuality into the text. It's not meant that way. So rather than sort of deal with those complaints, you anticipate them by saying, guess what? It's all sexual, even the parts that don't seem sexual. So I think that's good. And I think it's also good for people. This is perhaps a more general answer to that question. It's also good for people to have a way of thinking about sexuality and erotics that is not actually somatic. It doesn't have to be tied to the body. I'm not against people having sex. I'm not saying instead of having sex, you should stay at home and read poetry. You could do both, in fact. But I think it's good to have a way of thinking about 
sexuality and eroticism and how they work and how they proceed that is not completely practical and that is not physical. That sounds insane, doesn't it? But I mean it. I do. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming to High Theory and talking about sexuality. This was a very illuminating conversation. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.